Thank you. Uh, thank you, worship team. Beautiful to come into uh, the presence of the Lord and the Holy of Holies. I, uh, I don't mean to embarrass anybody, but um, I see some, a couple here that I've known from years ago, and you might not even know who I am, but Frank and Audrey, just bless you. Bless you for seeing you here. And uh, Frank uh, was just, uh, as a very young believer, Frank for me was uh, uh, just a model of a man of grace and, uh, and just a man of passion for Jesus. And I, I, I'm sure that you're still there, but, but good to see you. Um, just as I'm preparing, as I'm preparing to, to speak, you know, I, I've got so many, I, I'm jotting notes down all the time about different topics. And, and I end up with so much stuff that when I finally, I think I'm all ready to go and I just have to write it in, but to try and, it, it feels like herding cats, taking all this stuff and then deciding what's actually relevant so that I don't lose, um, I don't lose uh, the point of what I'm trying to make. And, uh, and, and what I really want to do is try and tie this in, as always. I mean, anybody who speaks, we, we want to make this applicable to real life. And as I think of the church right now, and I think of us as individuals, and, and there's, there's a lot going on in this world. There's a lot going on in this country right now. You know, I, I think of some things, and sometimes it feels like a, a blow as, as, I, as I read the news and I, you know, I read of, you know, our new, um, our new uh, governor general and speaking to a group of scientists and, and basically just annihilating anything to do with faith because it's illogical, because it's not intelligent, because it's not relevant for today. And then I see um, right now the, the big controversy, of course, is the application. I've got this bit of a bit of that going on. I don't know if you guys can hear it, but but um, and then the application for summer summer grants right now. And, and you've got to check off this box that that basically tells you how you have to think. As, uh, as, as a Canadian, let alone a believer, and, and how sometimes that feels like a dagger in the heart. And, and, and I'm thinking, you know, there should be a response. There should be someone speaking back. And then, you know, and then you hear that, yes, that there are some groups that are, you know, they're going to court and they're, they're making a defense for, for the people who, who don't go along with this or even people that may not even have the same views but see see how it is actually actually counter to what we call diverse thinking. We're actually defining diversity in a very, very small, very, very small envelope. But it isn't just the fact that someone needs to respond to them. I, I feel that part of it in me is I need to know how to respond to me in that. Because, because when we get bombarded with this all the time and it's like, is there a response? How can I reconcile my faith in Jesus Christ, my faith that believes in a, in a godly existence, how can I reconcile that with the onslaught of, of intelligent modern thinking? And I've wrestled with it for a long time, and it's like, how do I have a language to even speak? When there was a time when people believed that there was a Bible that actually was the Word of God, and there was a time when... It, Maybe that it was done in a wrong way, but people believed in the Ten Commandments, and they may have seen God as maybe not necessarily a loving Father, but they may have seen Him as maybe cruel. But they did believe in a God that was a starting place for discussion. But my my question, God, is how do I have a conversation when there is no starting place? 
And so how do I reconcile this in my mind? And, and one thing that's given me freedom is to re- realize that you can't. That you can't reconcile the mind of the age, which is godless and, and has no belief, with the age, with, with um, the belief that we have of a historic God who, who actually is involved in everything in creation and, and has made a place for us and has redeemed us. And so, how does that actually live out? And it's, um, I, I want to use, um, I want to use James 3, 9. Uh, by the way, um, Diana, you did a great job of reading the scripture this morning. That was a tough, tough passage. Um, it, it was, it's, 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 there's so much in it that I don't even believe I can begin to unpack it, but, but I will, I'm going to use that as a starting place as well. But, but in order to give you a, a mental picture, I want to use James 3, 9 to 12. And essentially, he's, James, a very practical person, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, he's actually speaking in reference to the tongue and how we can use the tongue, and we can either use it as a, as a barb or we can use it as a, as a tool of grace. And really, it's, it, the application is the same because on one side, there's, there's faith. And in, in the two streams that he's speaking of, one of the streams is faith. And the interesting thing is I don't believe that the opposite of faith or belief, which really are very interchangeable. I don't believe the opposite to faith is unbelief. Because I believe in, in, in one stream you start with faith, and as you go down the stream you go to greater faith. And unbelief is actually another stream. It's the saltwater stream. The fresh stream is the stream of faith. And we grow from one degree of glory with, in faith. In unbelief, you might say the same is true. We can grow in our unbelief as well. And this has a big bearing on how we can connect with the world. It, 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 to me, it helps me a lot in understanding how I reconcile the things that are going on in the world with, with, with me and, and how that relates to my faith. So I actually want to tell you, it's a little bit of a, it's, it's really a story. It's about, um, it's about a, a relationship that I've had with a fella, a workmate. The nice thing I can talk about him because you will have no idea who he is because I don't work here. I don't even work in this province. I work a long ways away. I'm, I'm going to try really hard not to tell you his name just because I want to honor him in case I'm ever a famous preacher and, and, and people go back to listen to my old sermons. you know. But, um, but, but this is about a situation at work and, and it's something that has had a big impact on my life of the relationship that I've had with him. And I, I worked in this office building, and you can just imagine it's a, about a six-foot-wide hallway, ceramic floor lined with glass. And there are big hard wooden doors that slide open, and there's about 12 offices. And you can imagine that the people that built this thing were not thinking of acoustics when they're thinking of office buildings because the ceramics, the glass, um, when people talk in there, I'm sure everyone in those 12 offices hears everything that goes on. And I'm just trying to set the stage a little bit because my friend 
had a, the office right across from him and, and me, and there, there was no privacy. There was no privacy at all. I had to learn how to work in this setting because it was so noisy and there was so much discussion. It was, it was quite a rich environment of, of uh, ethnic um, diversity. Uh, my boss was down at this end and he was Baha'i. Across from him was uh, a young fellow who was a Hindu. The next one over, on the opposite, on the other side, he was Muslim. Um, the, I had another Hindu and another Muslim and another Muslim beside me. And the, the Caucasians, there was about three or four of us there, they're the only ones that you didn't know what they believed because they just didn't talk about it. But everybody else, they talked about it. I, I'm hoping I was an exception to that. In fact, I know I was. But I just want to set the stage. And I had one of, uh, one of the contractors was then speaking with me one time. And, and I was just having a bit of fun with him. And I, I just told him a joke. I, I think it was the joke of, you might have heard it before, and that's okay. The little girl that was standing at a bus stop waiting for uh, her, her, the bus to come pick her up. And a teacher happened to go by. And, and she saw that the little girl had a, a little book. And it was the story of Jonah. And she said, um, she said, I, I, I see you've got the story of Jonah there. Um, do, you, uh, do you believe the story of Jonah? And she says, oh, I love the story of Jonah. And, it's, and I, yes, I believe the story of Jonah. And the, and the teacher said, well, well, how do you know it's true? And the girl said, well, I, I, I think it is true. I don't have a reason to think that it isn't true. And she said, well, well, well how do you know for sure? And she says, well, when I get to heaven... I'm going to ask Jonah if the story is true. And the teacher said to her, Oh, well, what if Jonah doesn't go to heaven? And then the little girl said, Well, then you can ask him. And so I, I was telling this contractor who was with, about this little joke, and, and, and he laughed. And, and then it's, I mean, part of the deal is I wanted to strike up a conversation. And, and that's exactly what it did. And he said, uh, Oh, well, do you believe the story of Jonah? And I said, it's interesting that in the New Testament, I mean, Jonah's got to be one of the most bizarre stories in the Bible, but I said it's actually a story that Jesus mentions in the New Testament. And I said, yeah, I, I do believe the story of Jonah. And, and he says, oh, well, I'm an atheist. And I said, really? An atheist? I said, that's, I don't know if I've ever actually truly met an atheist before. I said, I've met many agnostics, people who aren't sure, but I, I've never don't think I've ever met an atheist before. And so at that moment, I turned and across the hallway in this glass palace that we live in is my friend. And he's got his elbows on the table and he's looking across at me. And he got up and he's looking at me and he kind of disappears behind the wall as he's coming back to the sliding door. And he comes back to me and he leans on my desk and he says, are you... Are you a God lover? Are, do you, do you, are, you, are you one of those hand-raising, worshipping God lovers? Of course, this is echoing through the whole place. And I'm, I'm thinking about how do I reconcile? I'm thinking of how, what the language that you speak. How do we connect with... So I'm actually primed and ready for this. And I look at him and I say... And so he said to me... Uh, I mean, I guess part of it is how would you feel? You know... Um, and part of it, he was offended. He was offended and actually disappointed because my friend and I, we actually think a lot alike. I'm, I'm, I'm analytical. I, I, I'm a linear thinker. I, I like to process. 
And, and he's the same way. And we recognize this in each other as we work and, and, as, and as strategic planners what we, you know, in maintenance. That's exactly what you need. You need people that can, can do that very thing. So he was an excellent fit at the job. And, and, and so he just could not get his head around me being a God lover. So he said, how can you? How can you? How can you be so mindless? to believe in creation or anything to do with that fictitious book. It's all about science. That's fact. How can you argue with that if you have a brain? There's not even proof that Jesus even existed on this earth. So how are you feeling right now? Are you feeling like a barb is in your heart? Are you feeling that you're actually being challenged in your faith and and that your faith is on the line? Because I think sometimes we wear that and we don't know what to do with that kind of response. And the reality is that there is a response, but the response doesn't come on the same plane as where it came from. And what we need to do is rethink. Um, rethink. We need to have a better understanding. And, and the, the, the core, the root is, is that we can relax in knowing that we live with the reality of these two streams that we live with grace or with uh, faith on one side in one stream and we live there's actually a spirit of unbelief so where is the starting point and this is this is this passage that diana read and and as i said it's it's a challenging passage there's so much in it um but it says since we have such a hope we are very bold not silent not like moses who would put a veil on his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. It remains down. Because only through Christ is it taken away. The veil remains unlifted. It's about unbelief. And only through Christ is it taken away. And that happens with faith. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, that is so interesting, that when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You would think that the veil would be removed so that you could then turn to the Lord and see. But it says that you turn to the Lord and then the veil is removed. What he's saying is that the only way that we can actually come to Christ, that's the only way we can come. We have to have faith first, and then we, and then we see. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. That is, walking down or swimming down that stream of faith, going from faith to greater faith. It's, it's living in a fresh stream. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So faith comes first, understanding second. And the thing that's interesting is that the faith doesn't originate in the mind. Faith actually originates in our heart or the soul of who we are. So if you try to convince somebody of faith in the mind, you can't. It actually is something that happens within the heart. So I think one of the things that one of the things I really talked to my friend about and I challenged him right away and I said this has nothing to do with intelligence. Absolutely nothing to do with intelligence. I said, there's people way smarter than you and me that believe in a God of 
creation, a God that, that loves and a God that, that came uh, as a redeemer for us. I said, as much as there's people way more intelligent than us that believe in evolution, that believe in, um, that believe in, in a basically a godless existence. I did have to, to make that clear in the conversation. What was interesting is he often would say to me, oh, you all, you all, why do you always bring the Bible into everything? And I said, actually, I, I, I don't. But he was so, so passionate about the conversation that he would continually bring the Bible in whenever we talked because he, he, he just needed to engage in it. He just couldn't, he couldn't leave it alone. It was, an, it, it was actually a very exciting time. And so one day I asked him how his, uh, how his weekend went. He said, really good. My, my son had, had a birthday party. I said, well, how old is your son? He said, uh, Romans 12. I said, there you go again. Bringing the scriptures into it. Is. And he looked at me and said, what are you talking about? Uh, and then he, he had a little bit of a, he had enough of a background in, in the Bible to be dangerous. But, but the interesting thing is that Romans 12 is, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of the mind. That by testing, you may discern what the will of God is that is good and acceptable and perfect. And I, unfortunately, even in the church, um, over the years, you've heard people diminish the idea of the mind being a relevant part of faith. And, and, and that's, that's untrue. The mind is actually a very integral part of, of our faith as we walk out our salvation. It, our mind must be renewed. Uh, and that, that renewal, part of that is, as, as that veil is lifted, that we actually can see things that we couldn't see before. But it is walking down that stream of glory to glory and, and being, being renewed um, one step at a time as we walk. The mind has to be part of who we are. God made the mind. He doesn't want to diminish the mind. But the mind also needs to know it, where it fits in terms of who we are as a whole person. And so the mind does not lead. It's, it's actually the spirit that leads. And, and we, that's, that's another topic. But, but the mind... Is, is very relevant as we, as we walk out our faith. And so a big thing with uh, my friend was, was the whole I think, uh, idea of evolution and the idea of science. And, and so we, we started to talk about that quite a bit. I, um, I'm, no, I'm no expert. I don't, do I see Craig here? I think of Craig when I think of this stuff because Craig, oh, there he is right in front because Craig is the kind of guy that he's, he, he, you think and you talk a lot about science and those kinds of things. And I'm sure there's other of you that probably know way more about this than me. I am interested, but I haven't really gone in depth of it. All I can tell you is when I speak about this stuff is my friend didn't know really much more about it than I did, but he had sound bites and things that he would throw at me and stuff he would grab off the internet. And so I, d I just want to give you a few thoughts on it. I certainly don't want to sound like I'm um, certainly the, uh, the authority. But evolution, is it a law? Is it a theory? Is it a principle? And if you just, all you have to do is Google it and have a look. And, and people debate it. And it's interesting because people don't debate the evidence of heat of fusion or heat of vaporization. But they will debate evolution. Now, there are elements of evolution that they actually have evidence for. Um, we know that species can change and adapt. And, and to me, does that describe a godless existence because a species can change and adapt 
actually no, it actually describes to me of a, of a God uh, 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 and, and how wondrous his creation is. I think something that's really important is lack of evidence one way or the other is not proof in a world that always discovers. 500 years from now, if we are still here on this planet, can you imagine the amount of knowledge that there will be, not only because of the 500 years, but because of the rapid increase, that exponential learning of technology and what the, the knowledge we have in the past is doing for us? So when we don't, when we're not able to actually verify something is not evidence that it's not real. We just haven't discovered it yet. I found it interesting. I mean, I, I, I was uh, shopping for Christmas and I, and I came across this, the National Geographic. I don't know how many of you saw this on the newsstands, but um, just December going into Christmas and the, the real Jesus what archaeology reveals about his life. And, of course, I couldn't help but think of my friend who said to me, we don't even know if Jesus... Actually, he says, I don't even believe that Jesus even existed, that he even walked on the earth. There's no evidence. And this whole article is about basically tracking the footsteps of Jesus and showing evidence of how Scripture actually lines up and that these places exist and it's a very interesting article. They're not making a claim on his deity, but they are, they are showing um, a case for his existence and that, that the things that we find in Scripture are accurate, that they're reliable. Here's one example. They, in Galilee, um, there was a site that someone was going to build a resort on. And part of the procedure there is that you need to, they had a procedure that you had to go through because of all the history that was there and you had to bring experts in to do a survey of the site. And what they found, lo and behold, was the temple in Galilee. And one of the, that's one of the things that the skeptics were saying was the scriptures are wrong. Everyone knows there was no temple in Galilee at the time of Jesus. So when the Bible says that he was teaching in the temple, the Bible's wrong. So, I mean, they actually say that in the thing. If skeptics were right, their claim would shred the gospel's portrait of Jesus as a faithful synagogue-goer in Galilee. Prior to them finding the temple, we didn't have evidence. So the skeptics would then say it's not real. But the reality is that as knowledge builds and as we, as we keep exploring, we continue to find evidence that we didn't have before. I think the other thing is sometimes that as we build knowledge, we can actually have a law. A law that states something that even though it stand alone, it, it is true, it may not actually apply to the situation that we're trying to apply it to. And I'll give you an example. Newton's law on universal gravitation. If you understood Newton's law on universal gravitation and someone told you that they were going to invent an airplane, you would say, don't even bother. You can't fly an airplane. Everything that you take up just comes straight back down. But then if you understood Bernoulli's law that, or his principle that as velocity increases, pressure decreases, and you understood the aerodynamics of an airplane wing, you can then have one law that is very real and very true. But without understanding the second principle, the, f 
the first law doesn't actually apply. Actually, it applies, but it, it isn't complete without understanding the second. The same can be so true with science that we can have something that we can understand. It can be very real and it can be accurate and you can prove it in a laboratory. But there may be other things, there are other things that we don't know. But they could apply to that, that situation that may change the outcome of what we believe about that particular situation. How about the law of, of uh, thermodynamics? Craig, what's the first one? It's about energy. Can Exactly. So the first law of thermodynamics says that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It deals with the total amount of energy that is in the universe. It can change form, and it can be transferred from one object to another, but it can ne- the, the total amount of energy can never change. So do you see a conflict with this maybe when we talk about a godless creation of energy that, has, that, that can't be created, can't be destroyed? So in a natural sense, how do you create a universe with energy that didn't exist at the beginning. Now, I might be taking that out of context for someone who's an evolutionist, but I think what is even more interesting is the second law of thermodynamics. Every transfer of energy is not 100% efficient. Every time an energy transfer happens, some amount of energy will move from the useful category to the useless category. So think about it. When you're playing pool, the guys are playing pool, and one ball comes and hits another, the amount of energy in the first ball gets transferred to the second ball, but the second ball doesn't have as much energy in it as the first because there is a, there is a loss of energy in the transfer. And that energy is actually heat. But the heat is such low-grade energy that it's considered useless. And when I'm reading just a science, it's actually a science textbook, Here's how they describe it. Useless energy goes towards increasing the randomness or disorder of the universe. So over time, energy goes from complex to simple to useless. Not the other way around. A deck of cards, but I do now. This is a brand new deck of cards. So I got a brand new, brand new deck of cards. I haven't even looked yet. And I'm going to put Fred on the spot because Fred knows a lot about cards. What's that card? Ace? I was thinking it would be the ace. So it's an ace of hearts. And if you go through it, what's the next suit? Hearts, clubs, yeah, clubs, diamonds, and then spades, and then the jokers are at the end. And, and every time you buy a deck of cards, it's always the same, isn't it? So... If this deck of cards represents life, it actually makes me think of a soccer game. When I think of, of a godless creation, if you want to call it that, it makes me think of a soccer game where the players are out playing soccer and there's no goals and there's no sidelines and there's no uniforms so they don't know which side to play on and the referee doesn't have any eyes and the scorekeeper doesn't have any numbers but we're going to play a soccer game. Because when we talk about a godless universe, where is the reference point? Where is the starting point? How do you even know what direction you're trying to go? What are you trying to achieve? There is no direction. There's no goal. There's no purpose. There's no design. And so if you take the cards, like life, and 
then you say that it's in the randomness of chance that we end up with something that actually starts to build and make sense. And to me, that's a lot like this. Now, I mean, I don't think anyone here expected that those cards were all going to come back down and land in order by suit and by, by their number. But if you're an evolutionist, you say, well, no, you only have to pick the cards up and throw them up again. And then you throw them up again. And eventually, if you throw them enough times, the cards will all land back in that perfect stack to create life. Now, you tell me, is that faith or not? I think it takes more faith to be an evolutionist than it is to be someone who believes in creation. And the interesting thing is there's no designer. There's no design. When the cards finally do, if they ever could possibly land back in the stack or even partially in a stack, enough that there could be some sort of amoeba thing that might crawl out, what's to stop the deck from getting thrown back up again and rearranged and it's all starting from scratch again? As I say, I'm no expert, but it doesn't take very much time for me to start just doing a little bit of looking to go, this is based on belief. That when people are looking at science, there's many Christian scientists, and I'm not talking about the Tom Cruise type. There's plenty of Christian scientists who believe in science, and they look at it from the perspective of faith. We don't necessarily hear them. Although, I mean, we have talked a little bit about, um, about um, help me out, no, I'm thinking of um, uh, switch on the brain. Caroline Leaf, I mean, and she's one who's a scientist who, who does go in and she looks at, um, at the brain and how the brain is actually, um, I mean, she, she sees the glory of God. She sees the glory of God all over, all over the brain and how we're made. Um, I mean, the other thing, strangely enough, I mean, the, the uh, governor general speaking to the scientists about, um, uh, about, about, uh, about faith or, or how uh, mindless it is, You'll have other astronauts that are in heaven, or in heaven. <laughs> they're probably there too, but um, in outer space, and they'll look back and they'll just see the beauty of God's creation when they look at the earth. They see the most magnificent thing in all that they see in the solar system, and they say it's the most magnificent thing. All to do with belief. It's, it's that starting point. Which, which stream are we in? Are we in the salt stream or are we in the fresh stream? So faith comes first, understanding second. I don't wait around in anxiety wondering if science is going to prove or disprove my faith. Because the gold standard is, is the God of creation. It's not society. It's not what society has to tell me. The gold standard is in the scriptures. It's in the God of creation. And that's, that's where my faith is. That's where my trust is. And as I say, sometimes I don't understand I don't understand things, but I go back, I, I go back to that solid rock. Don't discard the Bible where science simply has not yet discovered the evidence. And there's also plenty of evidence to support what God is doing. We can see the wonder of his creation and, and, and we can see from the cards on the floor that we can be in awe of, of how his glory is manifest in, in the things that he's made. So uh, to, to, to add a little bit more punch to this, Mark 4, 1 to 3 um, this is the parable of the sower. And this is an interesting passage. And it's, it's a very difficult passage if you don't come from the perspective of what I've already established. But it's, um, the parable of the sower is that the sower was sowing seed and some fell on, on, uh, 
on the pathway and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground and it germinated but then died quickly. But then some fell on fertile soil and it grew and it grew in multiples and, and produced a crop. And that part, you know, I, I can kind of get my head around that. But what, what he said after that was, and when he was alone with those around him, with the twelve, with the twelve asked him about the parables and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parable, parables so that, and you've got to catch this, this is hard. They may indeed see, but not perceive, that they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. Now, is that a hard saying? Well, that's a very hard saying. What is he talking about? Because we know that, that it, it is God's will that no man would perish, but come, to ever, but come to eternal life. So why would he be speaking in parables so people could not see, they could see, but not perceive, hear, but not understand? And it's really going back to the same thing we already established. And it's, it's that in the stream, you, you, you can only come to, to Christ with the veil lifted. You can only come to Christ with faith. Faith comes first. Knowledge comes second. So James, it says that the springs can't produce both fresh and salt water. It's going to be one or the other. So it must be with us. Unbelief it actually is quite scary, really. When, it, and when you look at it from the outside, it seems so obvious. When you're in the middle of it, sometimes you don't see it. But if I go to Mark, oh, where are we at? If we go to Parable of the Sower, yeah, it's Mark 3. And this is just an example. And this is about the religious leaders of the day in Jesus' day. <coughs> and, this, and it says, again, he entered the synagogue, and that was Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, which, which were the religious leaders of the day, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Are you picking up where I'm going with this? So here they're expecting the Messiah to come. Jesus is standing right in front of them. They're not even doubting the fact that he's going to perform a miracle. But yet they're getting ready to accuse him for breaking the law. The veil is over their face. They cannot see. The veil has to be lifted in faith. They don't have faith. They cannot see who he is, even though he's performing a miracle in front of them. And they're expecting him to come. It was all prophesied in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's actually quite scary what unbelief can do to us uh, when we're in the middle of it. And I think, you know, other things in our, in our society, you know, like right now, the, the, this Me Too campaign is, is, is really big. And, and, and I believe that there's justification for, for, for kind of the beginning of, of what people are saying. And it's stuff that I think, you know, many of us have suspected in many circles in the, the entertainment business. And certainly when you have people with power and how they abuse that power. And I mean, I work with I work with with uh, women at work, and and I'm glad that our work environment is generally very safe. And I, I think that just because I can tell how you can have good, healthy interaction with with the women that are in our uh, workplace, that they feel safe. But I, I do know that there was just recently an incident where two a man and a woman had to get in a truck and go off site about 15 kilometers down the road to another area, and 
I mean, I don't, I don't think it was anything serious in, in terms of criminal, but yet she ended up feeling threatened by the fellow. And, and I think what a terrible, terrible thing to, to live in an environment where you're always feeling that, um, that they're highlighting your sexuality, um, that they're making that obvious and, and just speaking about that to you in a way that you just aren't excited about. You don't want to have anything to do with it. And, and, and I think that that's, and so I totally support that side of it. The concern that I have with, with it is, is what I'm really picking up is, is that we can easily then go to a place where we end up in this place of unbelief, is we can end up actually taking away from a healthy relationship. We can actually end up starting to create barriers in our society between men and women because we use the, we use the bad example, we use the worst case scenarios as the one to establish what is proper, good, and true. And, and I just think it's how we can end up distorting the beauty of, of what God created in, in a marriage relationship of, um, of, of the submission and, the, and also the, um, the sacrificial love. And, and when you bring those two elements together in a way that they've been designed... God knew what he was doing when he made us and he made man and woman and he knew that, that one of the deepest intimate relationships we're going to have on this side of the earth, of uh, this side of heaven, is going to be in the marriage relationship. And what I don't want to see is that, that, that salt water end up breaching across and making it into the fresh stream and starting to try to blend these two streams that don't, Actually, they can't actually be blended. There is, they're, they're, they're distinct. But we just have to be on guard that we don't allow the thought and wisdom of the age to infiltrate the place of faith and that foundation. So what do we do? I mean, where, do, where does faith come from? I mean, part of it is I don't know if I can really answer the question. But we do have some clues in Scripture if you go to Mark, actually, I don't think I need to read it other there. It's it's basically it's the um, in Mark 9:24. It's it's the boy with the unclean spirit, and and the father comes to Jesus, and um, and Jesus basically says that that if you believe, it will be done for you. And and then the man's response is quite intriguing. He says, "I believe. Please help me with my unbelief." And what he's doing is he's actually exercising his will. He's actually exercising his will over the unbelief. And so I think that that is one model that we can actually see that, that when we have it, we can make a choice when it comes to our faith and building up belief in ourselves. And, and we can actually exercise that by our will and say, I make a choice to be a person of faith. I make a choice to act in faith in this situation. And, and Lord, and so then I'm also counting on you in a supernatural way to come to fill me up and also to lift the veil in the areas that I can't see what you have in store for me. And there's, uh, there's only one other thing that I can really think of. Um, I mean, this, is, this may be an old story. I'm not sure. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it on you anyways just because I think it's kind of a cool story. I actually shared this one with my friend. Because he, he looked at me and he said, how can you be so sure? <laughs> how can you be so sure? And he was just so irritated. 
How can you be so sure? And he says, you just spend all the time just talking to the people that just tell you what you want to hear. You know, why don't you, why don't you go out and talk to some scientists for a while or something? You know, like you just, you just, you just read it. He says, like, and I said, yeah, I said, yeah, actually, that's, that's exactly it. I said, you hit the nail on the head. And he goes, what? I said, yeah, that's, that's, what you're saying is exactly true. Because we are what we eat. The tale of two wolves. One even in an old man told his grandson about a battle that goes on inside people. He said, my son, the battle is between two wolves inside us all. One is evil. It is angry, envy, jealous, doubt, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The other wolf is good. It is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, forgiveness, truth, compassion, and faith. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then asked his grandfather, which wolf wins? And the old man simply replied, the one you feed. And I think it's so true that in a world there is there is so much stuff that comes our way. I mean, I, I, I mean, for me, I, I do, I like the news. I just click on the news and pick it up on my phone. I don't watch TV, um, but I'll, I'll get it on my phone. But I, I do, I am aware of the fact that that a steady diet. If I'm spending more time reading the news than I am meditating on the Lord and, and His promises and His goodness and, and spending time in Scripture and, and feeding myself things that are going to build me up, it will actually begin to erode my faith. It will actually start to take its toll on me. And so, for me, there's no rules. It's not about news being bad, but I'm just aware of the fact that when I'm continually, and we're talking, you know, when you continually feed yourself something, it will have an effect on you. You are, you are truly what you eat. So how did I respond to my friend's question? How can you? How can you? How can you be so mindless? And so my answer to him was not to answer him on, his same, on the same plane. And I answered him actually with the two streams. And actually, I think, Randy and, and the rest of the worship team, if you guys could come up, um, they're doing something special, a uh, request for me today. And uh, so you guys can just get ready and, and I'll let you know um, when it's time. But um, So I answered him not on his plane. I answered him in the terms of the two streams. And I answered him, first of all, in the stream, the salty stream. And I said, you know, I understand from your perspective. If you start with a godless beginning and a world morphed and, cre- and, and cells created out of chaos, I understand if, if, if from that you grew a blob and then finally some creature that crawled on its belly eventually becoming life as we know it. And if all we are is this protoplasm and nothing more as we travel on this projectile called Earth on an unguided journey, to nowhere with no designer, no creator, no purpose. Where it all it ends is as meaningless as it was when it began. And I said, you know, I, I, I get it. I get why my thinking would be foreign to you. 
even offensive to your mind. Because it all starts with your belief. The idea of worshiping an imaginary God would sound as ridiculous as believing in an imaginary devil. The idea of wasting money, energy, time on foolishness would be just that, foolishness and also mindless. But then what I said to him was, uh, was something that actually was the foundation of a relationship that went on for two years. And he, he'd left, he's gone somewhere else. And he never did come to Jesus that I know of. But, but I was able to share the depth of what God had done in me. And it wasn't always easy. In fact, it often wasn't. He was, he was very challenging. And sometimes we even got into a place where it started to get into a little bit of a tit-for-tat. And I was concerned about that and I wanted to pull it back because I didn't want to go there. But I was able to share my heart with him. I was able to share some of those special places that the Lord had put in me. Stuff that I don't, you know, it's not something you're just going to share casually, but I was able to share some of those things with him. And, you know, I know that God's word does not go void. God's word is powerful. And and I know that to this day, in fact, there's times that I've tried to get a hold of him and he won't answer my text. I know some of the other people, but he says, is Ken still working there? Because I had an impact on him. I don't know if he loved me or hated me, and probably both. But we had, we had this relationship, and, it was, and the root of it, the foundation of it, was based on me establishing the two streams, that there is a place of faith and greater faith, and there's a place of unbelief and greater unbelief. And so what I said to him, and I'm not actually going to tell you exactly the whole thing because the, the, the worship team is actually going to finish what I told him because they're going to do it way better than I did when I told him. But what I told him was adequate at the time. It was inspired. But I said, but what if, what if the universe started with a heartbeat? What if it all at the very beginning was a heartbeat, a father's heart? The worship team is going to finish this. And, and this is, I'm not sure yet, this could potentially be our closing song. And most of you will not know the 